Welcome to our backyard. This is the Backyard Philosophy Podcast. We are two friends having a discussion after everyone else has passed out or gone to bed. Grab a drink and listen as we discuss everything from automation, space exploration, and why the meaning of life is 42. Nick, we've been friends for a long time. And I got a question for you. Would you sacrifice your life for mine? That's a negative ghostwriter. Not not even any hesitation at all? Not, not even a quandary or a thought in, in that in that statement? You're a person who values honesty in their friends, right? <laughs> I do. I definitely do. Well, there's your answer. Oh, it's fine. I got some Buffalo Trace that will keep me company until, until the FBI comes for me. But what about you, Nick? What are you drinking and how are you doing? I am doing great. I am getting hyped up on caffeine. I got a big thing of whiskey coke here with some top of the top of the line Evan Williams. So keeping it classy, you know. This economy, I mean, I can't afford Jack Daniels. Well, you had to make some sacrifices by not buying Jack, but we're not gonna be talking about that kind of sacrifice, Nick. We're going to be talking about the ultimate sacrifice, self-sacrifice for life, which is very coincided with altruism. For those unfamiliar, altruism is the unselfish concern for the welfare of others. And Nick, I'll be honest with you. I've heard this word. I've used this word, but boy, is it not a common word. I don't think before researching this, I thought about that word or used that word in years. Yeah, it's one of those words where... You think you know the meaning, but you got to Google it just to make sure you're on the same page. Like if someone used it in a sentence, you could slide by because you're you're pretty sure you know what they're talking about. But as soon as they left the room, you Google it to make sure you're just not an idiot. Fun fact, we're both idiots, so it works out. But altruism and self-sacrifice has been in the philosopher's mind in evolution, well, since the beginning of life. It's very complex, lots of theories, lots of ideas, and self-sacrifice was the one thing that made Charles Darwin question and hesitate his proposal of survival of the fittest. To make a man question his entire theorem in life's work by one simple phrase, self-sacrifice, that's a bold one right there. Because you had to be sure... Because he was upsetting everything everyone thought they knew about animals and in the world, basically, and so his idea had to be bulletproof, and that didn't <laughs> that one thing just didn't make sense. Well, there's always weakness in some armor, but animals and humans have been making sacrifice, both big and small, for their own species and sometimes cross species. Sometimes these sacrifices could be sharing food, but sometimes they might be laying down their lives for their colony, for their tribe, and everything in between. Nick, I think a good place to start would be Hamilton's rule, made by William Hamilton, who pursued and tried to guess, well not guess, the technology did not exist at the time for him to verify his results, but to see that altruism and self-sacrifice wasn't necessarily nurture, but nature connected to genes inside the DNA. And he devised a mathematical formula that supports natural selection, 
solving Darwin's worry, but it changes a little bit. Hamilton's rule favors genetic success, not reproductive success. So the survivors of the fittest is being like, oh, if you're able to eat the most, be the strongest, you'll get the most mates, so your genetics pass on. Well, there's a lot of caveats, asterisks in the animal kingdom about that. And in case anyone's curious, Hamilton's rule or equation is R times B is greater than C, where R is the genetic relationship, B is the benefit gained, and C is the cost suffered by the donor. And so kind of what, break that down to normal people talk, you can pass on your genetics through your family, right? So say like uh, meerkats, where you have like a, a very similar genetic in that genet- genes in that colony, the sacrifice of one meerkat in the hopes that the rest of the meerkats will live on, that gene line continues. You just lose one person, one animal. But that animal decided to make that sacrifice and in doing so allowed the rest of his genetics to continue to pass on and reproduce or even not his genetics, but genetics that are close to his, you know, like sister, brother, nieces, nephews, whatever. It's it's not exactly, you know, like his children. It's just similar genetics to his, the expanded family. Well, I assumed everyone at one point or another has heard the expression, it takes a village to raise a child. And that coincides quite well with Hamilton's rule of you might not find the one you want to spend the rest of your life with, but you can still be a good uncle or aunt to your nieces and nephews so that they have a better life. So that genetic line keeps passing down. That's not necessarily a direct lineage to yourself, which which I find interesting. You brought meerkats because I saw that's a great that's a great animal kingdom that does it, which I didn't think about. But the biggest one I saw when researching this was in insect colonies, specifically ants and bees, where most ants will not reproduce. The queen reproduces, not the worker ants. But yet the working ants will dedicate everything, their life just to keep that genome, that, that DNA sequence, that the, the, the life of the colony to keep going. Yeah, and it's not, it's it's all over, I'm trying to think of the right word, kingdom, I guess. Not just animal kingdom, so what, bacterial kingdoms. I mean, there's, uh, down, there's algae, single cell algae, that if they take too much stress, they'll just destroy themselves releasing their nutrients which only their the same kind of algae can use and it also has a detrimental effect on other species that are in the area yeah if i remember correctly for them that the stress has come on when there's a shortage of food and they understand that it takes a well sacrifice of living to make sure your species continues to survive but it's it's just it's like ultimate cannibalism of self-sacrificing for a species. But I didn't know about the second part of uh, being resistant or affecting other animals negatively. I only knew about them being nutrients for their kin. I'm sure there's multiple kinds of algae that do one or the other, or not all of them probably have to do both. I'm still waiting for algae to take over the world. It seems like they're going to any single day now. Well, they 
have been here longer and they'll be here after. So <laughs> who's the real winner? Yes. Let's uh slow and steady wins the race, right? That is true. I mean, that it's kind of like how Hamilton uh his his equation still kind of used, but one who kind of sped up and was the hare instead of the turtle in the race was a man by George Prince. And I'm not sure if you came across him, Nick. I did not. Well, George Prince, also, I think, a theoretical biologist, uh, would try to, quote-unquote, improve Hamilton's equation by adding why humans lived in families to the equation that Hamilton produced. And he would have a unique life, becoming extreme, altruistic, and would basically die homeless. The only places he would stay were it would jump around from home to home of people and I think one of those people he was staying with was Hamilton which I found interesting but he was trying to show the aspect that in nature it's not a there's a it's a multiple variable equation not so broken down the main thing being your family can grow and his and your equation must adapt to based on your family size that's what I could understand from his equation, uh, he put heavy asterisks on this. He was not the most mentally stable man. I could, what I could tell from reading about it. So everything is kind of hockey puck, and I just and trying to abstract what he was trying to say. Okay, so wait. So basically, his was just there's Hamilton's rule is more complicated than we think, and there's more variables than we think. Yes. Okay, I feel like I agree. <laughs> right? That seems. That seems reasonable. It seems reasonable, but when you have a madman trying to do it, it's uh, you get some interesting results. Yeah. Um, and then looking at more of the, unless you had anything else for more animals, I just have one more on like the suicide or like humanity side. I will talk about animals a little bit later in the podcast. It's more philosophical. I kind of want to stick with the science so far. So I don't know if this is science really but in 1897 a book was written i'm assuming it's lay suicide it's french and it's lay s-u-i-c-i-d-e don't speak french never have probably never will Uh, but pretty much it was a sociology book written by oh man i'm gonna mess this up too emile durkheim that does not sound French at all, does it? This is all uh, surrender talk, so I don't know French at all. <laughs> so he he wrote a, a book about the different types of suicide, and he talked about like why do people commit suicide, basically noting crises that affect people, such as war um, and economic problems, and came up that there's four types of suicide. Egoistic suicide, which is probably the most common, reflects a prolonged sense of not belonging or not being integrated in a community. And then altruistic suicide, which is what we're talking about. Altruistic suicide is characterized by a sense of being overwhelmed by a group's goals and beliefs. Pretty much when people put the greater good, you know, making a sacrifice for something they believe in. And then anomic suicide, anomic, which reflects an individual's moral confusion and lack of social social direction. 
And then the last one, Fatalistic Suicide, which this one I think is funny because he writes, it occurs when a person is excessively regulated, when their futures are pitilessly blocked and passions violently choked by oppressive discipline. And he wrote that this kind of suicide is theoretical and probably did not exist in reality. And I just like, why would you write that then? Uh, I don't know. Anyway, but this is kind of one of the, the first times that I saw recorded the phrase altruistic suicide and kind of the idea, not that this was the first time the idea of a sacrifice for the greater good being documented, because there's examples long before this, but kind of the first time it was looked at from more of a scientific point of view. Yeah, it seems like the pseudo-psychology that started in the 1800s really boomed into what modern psychology is. And it is kind of funny that he talked about a suicide that no one has yet to do yet. Seems like a little dark, but you know. But also North Korea wasn't a country then. True. Communist was not a thing yet. That's true. So. Thanks, communism. Thanks for that one. Uh, yeah. So that's pretty much all I had on like the scientific history. I'm, do you want to go to animals or like the human history? Uh, this one kind of teeters on both. And it kind of answers Darwin's question. So self-sacrifice, willing to wish, risk your life for your family, for your loved ones, for your tribe. You would think those genetics would be eventually worked out. So there'd be less of them happening in nature. You know, it's a biological trait that will literally lead to your death. And usually nature's pretty good at removing that. But there are some caveats. So uh, this gene, and I, we'll get to it why it is or isn't a gene in a bit, but this trait in humans and animals, why it might exist, is because the animals that sacrifice for their offspring, their tribe, their family members, not only are they self-sacrificing because now more uh, resources are available, like the algae, but... It's ensuring that your genetic line continues. So that trait that you have continues. So the best, the best analogy I can think of is a mother bear protecting her cubs. She will fight and die, sacrificing herself for the survival of her offspring. That ensures, based off that sacrifice, that gene continues. So when those cubs grow up and they have their own cubs, they'll probably do the exact same thing. And that's how scientists think this trait in creatures has survived is because self-sacrifice actually might ensure the survival of a genetic line yeah i mean that makes sense and the other one i meant i wanted i mentioned a little bit about the resources is it's extremely common in insect colonies especially but humans as well that they choose or refuse to get help or assisted when injured or or sick they exile oneself because they're damage or infected or disease or they are a known threat to the tribe that's very important for your genome so best way i can describe it is we've all seen or heard dogs when they're getting ready to die they will leave the pack and find a nice tree and fortunately go to heaven but th this is not just a ceremonial thing this is 
them removing themselves from the tribe so that it doesn't spread diseases, doesn't spread its sicknesses. It's constantly moving away from the resources so that their tribe, their ancestors, their cubs can survive. So if I'm getting sick and dying and I simply put myself somewhere else, that allows my children or grandchildren to have more resources where I was just staying at. And I thought that was a very interesting analogy of why self-sacrifice might continue throughout multiple different kingdoms. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a perfect kind of example of why I think there's... Because you look at it and you say, well, there's no much exactly like Darwin probably did, say there's no genetic advantage of self-sacrifice, but you still have that like genes being passed on in, in that kind of way. It's just something if you zoom in, it doesn't make sense, but if you look at a micro uh, view of it, it kind of makes sense. It's like, oh, well, he was going to have kids until he jumped on a grenade and blew himself up. Oh, well, he, he's not that gene line's going to be removed. No, it's, it's not exactly true. He could have been jumping on that grenade or fighting off an intruder so his kids survive. That's that's another possibility. Yeah. His kids, his family, I mean, the thing that, I guess, separates us from, you know, we don't think like animals do, right? Where, eh. I mean, when we talk about reproduction, like if it's not, we don't think like, oh, if I die, my parents are going to have another kid. Like that's... <laughs> That's not going to happen. <laughs> true. Very, very true. But that can happen in nature. And so that, that gene line, it doesn't st stop and end there. Whereas it, I mean, it does in our examples, for, in hum humans for the most part, but not for animals. They're, as long as your par the parent genetics are still there, you can probably pass on pretty similar genes again and again. The reason why I keep, we, we keep using genetics, and I don't know if this is too far for you, Nick, is because of Abigail Marsh and her team. She decided to investigate self-sacrifice a few years back. And interesting enough, they started from the opposite end of the spectrum. And I don't know if you came across her, Nick. I did not. Well, Abigail Marsh uh, decided, you know, self-sacrifice tend to be, you know, saints, nice people, stuff like that. Well, let's start on the opposite end of the spectrum and figure out how psychopaths, they're, how their brain works. So her and her team did some brain imaging on these psychopaths to see what makes them lack empathy. And they noticed the psychopaths have a smaller amygdala than average humans. There is probably a 0% chance I pronounced that right. The amygdala, the amygdala is a part of the brain that allows recognition of fear in others. The amygdala? I'm really that stupid, huh? Good thing I'm not passing on my genetics. I... <laughs> Had no idea what you were trying to say. My, I I pieced it together. <laughs> A M Y G D A L A. I I couldn't spell it. <laughs> I just know how it's pronounced. I guess. <laughs> All right. Good. To, good to know. Uh. Well, anyhow, after studying psychopaths, they decided to study the opposite of the spectrum, and decided to scan kidney donor brains and look deeply, especially after this. Uh psychopaths of that part of the brain that recognizes fear in others they noticed that the psychopaths have i think if i remember correctly an eight percent lower than the average person amagata and the uh, owner donors i think had like nine percent larger or uh, part of the brain than uh, than average people so the, pretty much this part of the brain 
was larger for people who willingly gave organs to strangers compared to psychopaths who, well, that's enough said psychopaths. So that specific part of the brain might be your self-sacrifice. Your That might be your genetic line of if that if that makes that enlarged, you are more willing to sacrifice yourself for your family. That might be a really interesting genetic trait. Wait, walk me back through that. So psychopaths, the Amangata has a small is smaller in psychopaths, and people who are altruistic, so people who donate their organs to random strangers, have a larger Amangata. So you can literally so see how nice someone is. You might be able to. That might be a genetic trait of if if your DNA sequence of your parents line up, so you have a larger Amangata you'll be much likelier to be a more it most likelier more likely to sacrifice yourself for strangers and others gotcha now granted uh this study was done on psychopaths and done on organ donors so it's not overall everything and i'm especially curious on how brain trauma and how does war affect amangata in your brain because your brain does change during traumatic instances but that's why I keep saying genetics because it might not just be that might be the physical trait genetics create to keep that gene sequence going, if that makes sense. So you're guessing that the basically the nicer you are, the bigger your I'm gonna say they your Ab- got Abdullah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I know. I I really fucked that one up. Amygdala? Uh, I'm guessing Amygdala. Uh I'm guessing if I have, if I'm more willing to sacrifice for my family, my tribe, so that genome continues, I most likely have a, uh, that part of my brain being larger. So as my genes continue, that that trait continues. So it's a physical feature, but only that it's only going to work to a point because you sacrifice too much and you don't pass your anything on. So that's exactly why it's you're gonna you have big and small because they're playing against each other, and obviously there's more to it than that. But yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, that's uh, that's really really interesting to me, and that's why I think uh, I'm very curious on how brain trauma and war, especially, affects that part of the region of the brain. I didn't really see anything come across it because I imagine if someone has a lot of heart. Um, head trauma, whether from car accidents, boxing, football, et cetera, et cetera, and they get older in their life, sometimes they have mean streaks. And I'm wondering if that promotes a mean streak because you're less, you you literally lack less empathy, the, the part of your brain that produces empathy. Yeah. I I think uh, also isn't, don't little kids like not develop empathy until like a little bit older? See, this is, this is, this is where it's interesting. Is it nature or is it nurture? Or I'm I'm assuming like most things in life, it's a little bit of column A, a little column B. But I, you might be more prevalent to become more empathetic if you have certain traits, maybe. And then the rest is just nurture. I'm not quite sure on that level. I, but I imagine. Yeah, I mean, for I think brain it's, development. It's probably a little bit of both. I'm sure your environment can override a lot. Of genetics, but it can't override all of your genetics. While I'm thinking about it, I came up with an interesting hypothesis about self-sacrifice and war. 
And if we're getting too far off the beaten path, Nick, uh, let me know. Uh, humans are really good at tricking our own brains. We're really good at doing bad things to ourselves and thinking it's good or doing lazy things and thinking we're rewarding or doing really hard things and thinking it's we're really good at tricking our own brains. But the reason why people join up the military is a slew of reasons. It could be patriotic, could be what your family did, could be uh, you want to get away from your town, just X amount of reasons. But as war goes on, I think those reasons change. For everyone who I've ever encountered with the military brack on my life, it all changed, no matter what century you are, to what you got into the fight for a reason, but you ended up changing your reason to fight for the man next to you. That person to the left and right of you all of a sudden became your tribe, and that self-sacrifice continues on through you of that's in your mind now. This is my family. Protect my tribe. Protect my genetic line, even if it's not a direct genetic line. And it's just a hypothesis or a theory, just a guess. But I think I think that might have some merit. Yeah, I think so. And I think, and that's kind of what I was getting. And in, in, from talking before, it sounds like we read a little bit different papers on this. But a lot of people tried to explain self-sacrifice and, and all this stuff in, in terms that I don't really think that's the reason people did certain things. Um, and part of that is I, I think a lot of decisions were just kind of, like you said, for, for family or instantaneous, like people put nationalism and, and strong belief of, you know, your country is a reason that people choose to sacrifice their life. And I think you're right that it's like the cause, like you wouldn't be it's there the without start, it. Not the end. Yeah. It's yeah. a start, not the end. And I, I just think about, um, so I try to think like, what is the closest I've ever been to death? And not that this relates to war, but when we, I was a wildland firefighter and we were on a fire and we were told we had had to leave or we were watching this other fire come at us uh, on forest service ground while we were working on this other fire and then started to pick up. And so we left. Well, no one told us because there was a, a bunch of fires going on. It was crazy. So it's not we didn't have enough systems in place to make sure we we're everyone was in communication because it was a small area like most wildland fireplaces operate. And uh, there was just too much going on. So our escape route had been, it was on fire. So we were being pushed away from one fire and we didn't know it. You love to see that. <laughs> well, we didn't know it. We were just driving home, we thought. And it's down this windy, curvy canyon. And we turn the corner and it's just like legitimate 70 foot flames because most trees are around 70, 80 feet tall there. So from the ground up to the top of the trees and beyond so huge flames both sides of the road uh we know there's fire behind us there's clearly fire in front of us so we had to figure out do we wait or do we just kind of go down the road because at this point we're this is as close as we're going to get to the bottom which is where town is and there's a river down there this is as close as we're going to get to town and safety 
before we get pushed back further into the woods and away from safety. And we were like, let's just go for it. And there was other, you know, we didn't see him at the time. We had a water tender coming behind us and it was so smoky and thick. We could only see like five feet. And so we were immediately like went into decision-making like, okay, if the engine stalls because of lack of air or whatever, the roads blocked because a tr- burning tree fell and things get hairy, we're going to start the engine, deploy, uh, deploy the foam, spray it all over the place, um, make a space and if we have to deploy our shelters make a space where if we had to we could ride it out now luckily we made it down fine truck didn't break or anything but we're all preparing for the worst and uh it was instinctual like there was no we all knew exactly the plan we just i don't even remember who said what but we all said it out loud we all knew exactly what we needed to do we're all on the same page and we were just, I, I don't really know how to describe it, but it wasn't for like, and not that it was a sacrifice, but it, it wasn't like there's like a greater good or anything going on. It was just like, this is how you react in the situation. So I, I wonder how much of that is, is what we're talking about. Well, that brings up to my next point of, I'm, I'm willing to bet a lot of self-sacrifice done by humans is simply a reaction and they're not seeing the big picture. They're not seeing, I mean, how many times do life and death scenarios come down to a split second decision? I imagine tons. No time to think about, will I die doing this? Will I suffer major injury? You just react. And I imagine if it's jumping on a grenade or if it's figuring out a way out of a burning fire, you're just reacting. It's it's flight or flight mode. And I imagine that's why a lot of self-sacrifice is happening is just like, you see an imminent danger, you're pro- you, you don't have time to process this, you just react to the imminent danger, and that might cost you your own life. I I will never know, but I'm curious um, what would be the number of people who would sac- self-sacrifice knowing they were going to die. Because I imagine it's a lot fewer than people thinking, oh, just that happened, got to react, didn't even think about it, and then ended up dying. Yeah, I mean... I think that's definitely a part of it, uh, maybe a bigger part that than we realize. And not to say that that takes away from a sacrifice at all, but I, I do feel like that's definitely something that happens. And, and I think it just more speaks to the fact of how out of touch these researchers are, that they just have like no idea. <laughs> My favorite was I read several studies where they measured willingness to self-sacrifice just from like paper tests that they administered it's like how what (laughs) exactly how are you supposed to measure that in a paper test i don't think first i don't think that's something that can be measured how much you're willing to sacrifice and if it is it's not from like a fucking scantron form it's like i don't know what what they're supposed to to get out of that well, I did come across an interesting study that kind of wasn't the best, but I think did really good. So naturally, you no, this is this is, didn't mean to be a pun, but naturally, you don't know where natural disasters are going to happen. And what scientists have been trying to do for the past decades, I don't know about you, Nick, but I saw a lot like so much research from like 2004 to 2008 period, like 
that's for some reason scientists were fascinated with self-sacrifice. But anyhow, they kept asking people on how much they would donate if during a disaster, how much they would, how much blood they would give, how much they would stuff like that. They would all, you know, give random amount of numbers. But once in a while, a natural disaster would actually hit, and then they would ask those same people again. And it turns out those people were way were giving way more than they previously thought, and they actually said they would do. Uh, it's kind of hard to measure self-sacrifice when you haven't been through it, but I guess the relationship and the trauma through it, it makes people want to sacrifice more. So a big one, I think, was an earthquake. I want to say it was in South America. could have been Chile. They did like 3,800 people, and they they measured just like, oh, people want to only donate X amount, like, you know, 5% of their earnings if there was a huge natural disaster. National disaster actually hit. Uh, the people went through it and stuff like that. And they went back and they asked and it, it jumped up to like 28% or 25%. It was like people, once it actually happened, it went all gun ho And something I personally think like an example of that would be 9-11. 9-11, I mean, it changed not just America, but the world. I still remember it was really weird. Uh, a tribe in Africa sent America cows because they felt sorry for us and they wanted to help. They just saw it on the television or, or heard it on the radio and they sent cows to assist us. That takes my breath away every time. That strangers from a strange land were trying to do everything they can and sacrifice food, which that's a huge sacrifice, especially if you're a tribe, to an unknown tribe. That's that's amazing to me. But I it's I agree with you, Nick. It's Scientists were not the best at studying self-sacrifice, but also in their defense, how do you measure self-sacrifice? Are you talking about the ultimate sacrifice? It's a little, it's a little hard to ask dead people. And then if you do minor sacrifice, well, now there's a spectrum of sacrifice. I don't, I just, I'm not even quite sure how to research it. Yeah, and yeah, like what are you gonna do? Ask every single person their views on self-sacrifice, and then wait for one of those people to sacrifice their Actually life. Actually, do it, <laughs> and then yeah. see what they answered. And then wait for another person to see if their results are similar. Um, I did read one study that was not it. They were relating it to making the ultimate sacrifice. But what they did was they told these people they would give them money for each uh, teaspoon of hot sauce they ate to whatever charity that they wanted to. And they measured their self-sacrifice by how much pain they were willing to endure. And it was... That's an interesting one. I know. Isn't that hilarious, though? That's a good one. It's like a game show. Nick, I got to talk to you after the episode. <laughs> yeah. So so what? how how much were people willing to suffer? Um, Pretty much, it's, it's honestly, I was surprised. Their written test that asked how much they were willing to sacrifice um, kind of backed up what they found with the... Like the more they cared about a position, the more pain they're willing to endure. So basically, the, if they put they really cared about something, then they're willing to eat more hot sauce. Makes sense if they truly care about something, they're willing to pay the price a little bit more. And I'm, but I'm also kind of wondering if you know you kind of got put on the spot. They were told they were two separate studies, but they were one after the other. So it's like someone asked you, how much do you really care about the environment? And someone's like, I'll give you, you know, you can, you can give this much money to the environment. 
and you just said you really care about it. You know, so you know, I, like they're they're putting the words to merit. Yeah. Well, there's another thing I think that we have to add into the equation of sacrifice. And okay, one last study. I did talk about how I think it's kind of ridiculous to ask people in writing how to the lengths that they're willing to go to for a cause. And one, they did ask a group of terrorists from Africa who are imprisoned the lengths they're willing to go to, and it pretty much matched up with what they had done. So I feel like that's that's measured. Like, <laughs> So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you actually can just ask people what they what they think because all the data is showing me that that's true <laughs> so i don't well i'm gonna pivot from what i just said i don't want to talk about that study because i saw similar things because i mean religious purpose was a huge one when i saw about self-sacrifice i mean you have the the uh the christians who hit themselves with the floggers suicide bombers uh saints like people who would go and take care of leopards even jews not risk of their life. willing to say they're christians during the the spanish inquisition yes no one ever i i'm so i've been trying this entire episode trying to work in the spanish inquisition nick you read my goddamn mind i've been waiting this whole episode to bring it up too so <laughs> oh, no one ever expects the spanish inquisition but yeah that's that's all self-sacrifice. Like, there's some good self-sacrifice, and there's some bad self-sacrifice. Like, I think if the Vikings, if I remember correctly, you weren't allowed to go to Valhalla if you threw away your life, like, uh, willy-nilly. Like, you had to be actually trying to live and try to kill as many fuckers as you can before they kill you. But, again, suicide bombers and saints on the same plane when it talks about the ultimate sacrifice... Which is really weird because it's their methodology and their ideology all being put to the test. It's someone going on a suicide mission versus someone wanting to hurt a bunch of someone, uh, a group of people because of different religious beliefs. All are self-sacrifice, ultimate sacrifice. It's just how we perceive them are different. Yeah, it's it's all yeah. Is it two sides of the same coin? Yeah. I, I, I think a big reason is because we romanticize self-sacrifice. I mean, since the beginning of humanity, ancient times, you mean you got Greek heroes, move forward a little bit, you got novels, plays, poems. Well, you have now, like the, I mean, yeah, exactly. Like we've had how many remakes of the Battle of Thermopylae of the 300 Spartans and the 4,000 Greeks that fought with them that no one talks about in the... <laughs> I thought it was like 12,000. Was it? Uh, it was a lot. Anyway. Uh, or Spartacus or, yeah. But yeah. It's... But all, I mean, every, every, just look at all the stories from World War II alone. Like how many, how many soldiers fought against impossible odds? How many, like how many Germans hid Jews from the SS? In the How many, how many, but also in the same same coin different side how many kamikaze pilots were there yes i was going to bring that up because that i was going to go down that whole thing i want to talk about kamikazes i'm going to cut this but fun fact it's not just a fun drink <laughs> okay so kamikazes it's it's really it, so when the idea was first proposed to the japanese military they said no 
but they was they ended up not doing as good at war as they thought they were going to do because uh, they made a lot of bad decisions militarily. Pretty much Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor was the, was the, one. the big one. Um, and I don't know if it's that they made bad decisions or they just weren't prepared to to fight the United States. Either way, in 1944, they decided that maybe we. Maybe we do do this. We're, they're getting kind of desperate, and they needed some guys. So they tr- started classifying people. And they were looking for two things. They were looking for pilots, and they were looking for people with who were, like, super, super into the party, into, you know, honor and all that. So they recruited two two big classes of people to be kamikazes. Like flight instructors, student pilots, like people just learning to fly, and students, like college students, liberal arts students for the most part, all the like engineers and, and scientists were going into their research to do probably worse stuff. And so they wanted these people who were, they could, were already convinced of how, you know, for the greater good, for honor, you know, invoking like, the samurai of the past and all this stuff. And these guys who are just like, fuck, I am in like, this is what I want to do. I want to bring honor to my family. And, and I thought that was crazy because the, and, and there's, okay. So the, the two big things that I thought was crazy is the, what I had heard, or I don't know where somehow I picked this up or just guessed probably about the kamikazes is one that they were, you know, like the lower class and not well-educated and that, like I'm sure you've heard this, that the the kamikazes only have fuel for a one way trip. That was not true. So the kamikaze pilots were usually highly educated. You know, most some were. It is a mix of a lot of different groups, but a lot of them were more well educated than you would think from from the high end universities. And second, they would make like if a mission didn't work out because of weather or whatever, they'd come back, which means. Every time you go up, you think you're not coming back and you have to do that multiple times. If like it's cloudy or whatever, you, you know, instruments break or, or something, you can't come back. So just imagine every time they get in that plane thinking they're going to die, they have, you know, the little bit of, they have their like end of life celebration pretty much every time they take off and then they come back and they got to do it all over again. It, and as the war went on, the recruits got less of that zealous type and they kind of just used whoever. The first, you know, batch of pilots swore an oath in blood. And those are the guys who were like, let's fucking go. And those guys, even some of those guys after a while of trips of like, oh, we're going to go out and then you end up coming back. Some of them were like having to think about dying, like legitimately ending your life multiple times would kind of just try and get out of it or whatever, but I just can't imagine like the mental anguish of, oh, I'm going to go die today. No, not today. Okay, no, now I'm going to go do it. Even if you really thought that's what you wanted to do, being tempted so many times has got to be, it's just got to suck. And so do you have some some guys who, you know, like if you had mechanical issues and had to turn back, then you get to live, literally live another day. And so you have these guys who'd have regular mechanical issues and sometimes they'd just be told, like, take off and don't come back. 
Like they they would oof. Yeah. Big oof. Like no, we we're on to you and uh we know what you're doing. Well, I to go back a little bit to what you said of you had the perception of that they were not the highest educated class. I think that kind of stems from the recent Iraq and Afghanistan war where monsters literally convinced uneducated farm farm people and uneducated men and women to put on suicide vests or suicide cars and run at people. So it's kind of like reverse of the highest of the highest. God damn falling apart. Uh, the highest of the highest educated versus the lowest of the lowest educated. Both are manipulable. One on a principle, one saying for religious regions. And I think that might stemmed of why you thought the Japanese kamikaze pilots were not the most educated of their military. Yeah. I mean, that's probably exactly where it's coming from. And then, you know, I guess it makes sense, like, not flying an airplane's not just, like, the easiest thing to do. Well, if you don't have to land, <laughs> If you don't have... Well, they did land. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, kind of sticking with the kamikazes a little bit and just just war in general... I would not be surprised if, well, actually, this is just for all the ultimate sacrifice. I would be surprised if we don't self-sacrifice for selfish reasons. First is to the want to show worth, like you were saying with the kamikaze, wanting to be honored to their families. Or in a tribe, you know, you're threatened by a uh, saber-toothed tiger when you're hunting mammoths. You throw, your, you, you throw yourself in front of the saber-toothed tiger so your family can get away. And you somehow make it back. You're a fucking legend. And another big thing is, uh, Nick, are you familiar with people do good deeds to feel good? Yeah, I think that's why people do good deeds, right? Yeah, that's that's a big reason. It's very hard to find someone who's 100% a saint, someone who's who's definitely, you know, uh, just altruistic in nature. And I imagine people who make sacrifices for other people kind of do as a stress reliever. Like I imagine the ecstasy of, you know, nearly dying of throwing your life on the line. It's got to be so much chemicals going in your brain. It's got to be such a interesting high. Yeah, probably. And yeah. And let, so when you, when we talk about self-sacrifice, I, I think they're, the two get conflated, like just self-sacrifice and like giving your life. It's just like when like a a wife asks their husband like, oh, would you do anything for me? And the husband in his mind is like, yes, because he's thinking, oh, I'm going to, f- I'll fight off a bear, whatever. I'll protect you from this. But what your wife's asking is, we do the dishes, we do this, we do that. And that's not what you're thinking. When people talk about self-sacrifice, like we're thinking of something like super noble, like in this one study, they talked about, you know, would you be willing to risk like this, like to, would you, what you, would you be willing to risk to help the environment? And like a lot of people put, you know, uh, forget the answer, but it's like sabotage or something like causing physical harm to something else or somebody like not harming another person, but disrupting whatever. And it's like, you know, I bet these people are, picturing themselves being the people to go out and fuck with a bunch of logging equipment and like it's this noble thing in in their mind but really it's like 
you know, self-sacrificed environment would be, you know, stop driving so much. (laughs) You know, it's, I feel like it's, uh, we, whenever we talk about sacrifice, we think of this high and, and, and like crazy noble thing. Noble. Yeah. But which most people are willing to do, but it's the little things that we're not about. And I feel like we, I feel like people can, and obviously, like I said, seems like the data is proving me somewhat wrong, but I feel like people are more willing to say that they'd sacrifice more than they are willing to. I think it's an even 50-50 split. I think there's an even split of people who say they'll sacrifice more than they actually will, and an even split of people who say they won't sacrifice much, but will sacrifice a lot. Yeah, I think I that's think true. it kind of balances out. Probably does balance out. I agree, because I feel like there's people who... You know those people who are like, oh, I don't give a fuck, who will just go out of their way to help all these other people? Like, want to be badasses not i want to be badasses but trying to be like the tough guy or whatever but really they're just super nice it's all fun and gills until you're standing in front of a burning building and you have to go in but sticking on with the empathy and the selfishness a little bit which is weird to talk about say selfishness during self-sacrifice i also imagine people do it because they don't want others to feel pain maybe it's pain they can relate to like maybe i don't know maybe Maybe they were in a car accident, so that's why they donate blood. Or their parents needed an organ transplant, and that's why they donate their organs. Or maybe the fear of loss. Maybe subconsciously, like at war, you're you know you're with your squad this entire time. Maybe subconsciously, you're going through in dream world, going through scenarios inside your brain of like maybe possibly losing someone of your friend or something like that. So when the opportunity arrives to prevent the thing you've been dreaming and fearing of, you instantly take it. They they just don't want to feel pain. They don't want to see ones that they love hurt. Yeah, I think that's a very real reason why people would do that. This is just a lot of my things are just guessing. Like uh, this is Nick. To be honest with you, almost like a pseudoscience. Yeah, I'd agree. Oh. It's definitely another one of those where like there's studies, but. We don't really know. We have some ideas. Maybe it's this. But something I want to go back with, you said, uh, well, like when we were talking about it balances out of there's some people who say more, they'll sacrifice more than the others, and some people say they'll sacrifice less than others, but when the situation rises, they reverse. I think it might actually depend on the scenario, too. I imagine a big effect is the bystander effect and social loafing. For those unfamiliar, the bystander effect and social loafing kind of boils down to if you're in a large group or a group of people, you're more likely to do nothing or put in less effort compared when it's just you. So when you see those assholes on like Florida Beach passing around a dolphin, the dolphin dies is because it's a group of people. It was an individual that probably act better. People and as individuals are smart as groups, they're stupid. So I imagine self-sacrifice also depends on the scenario. So if you're by yourself, I'm curious on how much more that would make you sacrifice your life or risk danger compared to a group. Because if you're in a group, you're like, oh, someone else will do it. Or it's not my job. It's the paramedic's job. Compared to when it's just you, it's like you have no choice. I'm, I'm very curious on how that would play an effect. I'm just thinking from my own experience of doing like prescribed burning when I'm by myself, I'm definitely not as much of a risk taker than when there's other people around. Cause I know I'll need someone to get me out of help. 
or get me out of trouble. But imagine you're working, you and one other person. How much would you risk to help save their life? I imagine it might be higher than compared uh, of your to someone like in the middle of New York City and someone falls over with a by, by, with a heart attack. Oh yeah, well that's that's a hundred percent real. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm just I'm just curious. But what on, percent? I have no idea. No, no, no. Just like in general, if that would increase people's self-sacrifice, because there's a difference between helping and full self-sacrifice. So there's a difference of like, oh, your friend broke his leg. You're uh, you carry him out of the woods. That's a, that's sacrifice. But I would say that's the same as someone who's having a seizure and you turn it on the sides and call nine one one in the middle of New York City. I'm talking like there's a grizzly bear and you're literally. You, you know, grabbing an axe and swinging it around and trying to scare it off or the bear mace to spray away the bear versus you see someone getting mugged in the city and you go to prevent it. I imagine those are very similar, but if there's a larger crowd, like, it, it's quite disgusting, but the, it happens in major subways in Los Angeles and New York City where people are killed or raped on a full subway train in front of other people and nothing gets done everyone's like scared panic but i imagine if there was less people like um maybe instead of being full but only like eight people or four people that something actually might happen and actually prevent that atrocity from happening i i think that's entirely true i think i think when there's less people you feel obligated to help someone and when there's more people you just assume someone else will do it so i I'd say that you're more likely to find probably sacrifice in a smaller group of people. <laughs> and I, I said, well, all I was thinking of is a, um, there's a an elk viewing area, kind of on the highway that I drive on a lot. And it's now that it's tourist season, I always I always see people walking out to go take a picture with the elk. And it's like I'm not gonna help them. <laughs> it's uh that's kind of darwism at a <laughs> at a point like these guys they go walk through this field to this just you know fucking five seven hundred pound animal to go take a selfie with it there's signs everywhere because people always get hurt it's like yeah not not that's a sacrifice i am not willing to take well you're not willing to take but I came across this kind of a dark, again, self-sacrifice is two sides of a coin. Are you familiar with the martyr complex? No. So the martyr complex is a person who puts themselves into situations that require sacrifice for others. So they feel like it's their merit that they it they seek to sacrifice themselves, hence martyr. And that seemed to be... A little bit more common than I thought it was. It wasn't a large part of population. I can't remember the percentage, but people constant. There are a group of people who are looking to constantly die on the cross, constantly to look for "woe is me," to constantly throw themselves into whatever needs to be done. It could be. I imagine the martyr complex isn't just one type of specific of sacrifice. I, I imagine. The martyr complex, I, I'm not a psychologist, so I don't know how exactly it's defined, is like all types of, of sacrifice. So sacrifice maybe for a re- uh, relationship, like you always have the one who has to give stuff up and you'll bring it up later to his sacrifice. Or you always have to be the one to uh, be there at the whim's notice and 
uh, want appreciation for it. Again, it might be a selfish thing of wanting self-worth, but that martyr complex, I think, has an interesting you, interesting feature on humanity and its psychology. So maybe, maybe that's kind of going back to nature and nurture. Is maybe when they were a kid, they saw someone do a heroic thing and they want to be like that, so they mimic that. And when it doesn't naturally occur, they seek it. Just a food for thought. Yeah, and I, I mean, like we talked about, that's really idealized behavior. And I think most societies, I mean, you look up, like I was looking up examples of self-sacrifice and a lot, a lot during World War II, but every country has their one, like, this is the guy who sacrificed the most and he's like, a, a, a not a local hero, but a national hero. And I think that's something that is just so ingrained to society that I'm sure every single person aspires to be that guy yeah a true a true model to live by that kind of ties back to a different article i didn't know if i was going to bring it up because it's kind of out of left field but it's an older article came out in 1998 and it's called on the leadership function of self-sacrifice by yon chow and rennet molly balton and it pretty much to summarize the the story is I'll suffer for you as a leader then suffer for me or suffer with me later on which I think has some merit because I'll be honest if I see a leader willing to sacrifice for me I mean I, I would want to return the favor it's almost like a you know I wonder how much self-sacrifice is because oh well they did x amount for me then I it's almost like an unspoken rule where I have to do the exact same amount back yeah yeah, and that's uh, not common. I mean, not what you normally see. I'd say that's it's not normal to, not that most leaders are bad, but I feel like most people don't see their leaders that way. <laughs> yeah, well, let's, let's, like, let's be cautious like, on who we call leaders there, Nick. Okay, well, I guess th I have an, an example, and I'm trying to find the page. Um, there's a study done in canada uh with the canadian army or whatever canadian armed forces uh predominantly the canadian army they also had their air force and navy but what they said was that they asked a group of they asked a bunch of people 2000 something members of the military to evaluate honor and their peers honor for themselves and their peers and how honorable they think everybody is. And it goes exactly like how you would expect that the subordinates, so your lower ranked members, viewed themselves as the most honorable. And then they viewed their leaders in their unit as less honorable than them, but more honorable and then their leaders above their unit. And then the leaders in their unit, so the enlisted, saw themselves as the most honorable, saw the leaders above their unit as less honorable, and then you did not they didn't ask for honors below. And obviously the leaders above your unit, so your higher levels, your senior officers viewed themselves, viewed leaders above unit as more honorable. So basically, which isn't surprising, what this found is that 
each group saw themselves as the most honorable. And they saw the people immediately above them as not as honorable, but more honorable than the people far above them. So I think that gets to our point of earlier, you, the people you surround yourselves with are the ones you're most likely to sacrifice for. Because the study was all about willingness to risk one's life in a military combat operation and how honor played a role in that and why it was important, blah, blah, blah. And I feel like that you didn't really need to do a study to tell you people view their peers as more honorable and that the farther you get away from them is less honorable. But uh, I guess you got to get established a data point somewhere. And then obviously that the perceived test said that they were more willing to sacrifice for their peers than people above them, obviously. So there's, there's an example of what I was talking about. Kind of makes sense though that you want to sacrifice for your equals, not your betters, quote unquote betters. Well, Nick, I got one more question for you. Do you think there is pure altruism? <laughs> hmm. Well, to buy you some time, I think there is. It's just extremely, extremely, extremely rare. It's when it's like definitely a, if it is a genetic trait, it's definitely a docile genetic trait. So it has to like all the stars line up and once in a while you get a saint. But besides that, I don't think there are any pure alter people. I think that it's all people who either nature or nurture develop into it, but they still have their flaws. Of course, you could make the argument that the flaws make them human, so that is pure altruistic, but I don't think... I think pure altruistic for... on a large scale is impossible. Pure altruistic is... God, if it's real, it's once... it's like once in a generation. Uh, I... I, I have, it's just too much to uh, to me imagine because like you said nick in the very beginning that their gene sequence just might be removed because they're too self-sacrificing so they never get to carry on those genes but maybe through enough breeding that it kind of develops of course you could make the argument that eventually we're going to get more altruistic because more people will carry that traits because well actually i don't know people might become more altruistic in history so they're more empathetic in history as more empathetic in the future because because uh, altruistic traits keep getting passed on but we shall see i vented as much as i could for you nick what's your answer well so i i i think i'm like okay i think about myself a piece of shit who wouldn't die for me it's got like, it why do, <laughs> exactly it's like why do i do good things and it's one because i enjoy them or two, because I'm like, no, I should do that. That's the right thing. So, I don't know. That doesn't feel very altruistic to me. Uh, but I think it's important to believe that there's altruistic people but out there. But do you believe there could be a person who's pure altruistic? Like, there's there's no selfishness in them. They're not doing it because it makes them feel good. They're just simply doing it to do it. Man, I... That's an answer. Know. I think... Cool. I'll settle, settle for, for that. I don't know because at the end of the day, after discussing my answer, I don't know now either. I said I kind of talked myself out of it a little bit, so I don't know. So, flip a coin. Yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds that sounds like our kind of logic. But when we flip a coin, are we gonna get kamikaze or are we gonna get saint? You flip first. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to now. 
I, 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 I trapped myself into a corner and I don't know how to get out. But I think at the very least of it, self-sacrifice is, uh, it's an odd one, Nick. Like, it makes sense. It's been part of humanity and the animal kingdom for since life, it seems like. But it's still not completely understood. And if people wanted to talk about self-sacrifice questions or anything we should look up to, where could they tell us? They can find us on Instagram and Reddit. And out of curiosity, Nick, what book are you reading? I am reading Wood by Roland Enos and... Mike, I have an update for you. I haven't read any more of it, but I did move it off my <laughs> nightstand when we were going camping to bring it with me. Well, you've made more progress than me because I'm still reading a uh, book, uh, Geometry for Ocelots by Extreme. And uh, I feel bad because it's a really good book. I just, uh, life got busy. Life got busy. I guess I'll have to sacrifice some time to go read it more. Oh boy! Hey, I saved the puns to the end. Can't you got you got to let me have that? Well, all right, and that's what I appreciate. <laughs> but with that being said, thank you all for listening. Thanks for listening to the Backyard Philosophy Podcast. We rarely finish a podcast without missing a point we wanted to bring up, so let us know what we forgot. And if you have a topic you want us to talk about, let us know at Backyard Philosophy on Instagram and Backyard Philosophy Podcast on Facebook.